We are back. Before we talk about NSA stuff, we do want to note that uh, we were rather pleasantly shocked to hear, both on NPR and on CBS, at least a friend of mine heard it on CBS and told me about it, that the new documentary about Flight 800 is uh, getting some attention. Our friend Christina Borgeson is the film documentarian behind this effort, and we will bring Christina on in the next couple weeks uh, as the premiere of the film looms in New York. We were thinking perhaps about traveling back to New York for that, since we think Christina deserves a lot of support for what she's been doing, but um, it remains to be seen whether that'll happen. But uh, for our money here at Radio Parallax, the accidental downing of TWA Flight 800 by the United States Navy with an errant missile has got to be the textbook case of how, with enough political might, you can bury any story. So you can bet we're going to return to that one uh, sometime in the weeks to come. But the NSA, as Mr. Will Durst points out, uh, well, they've, they've gotten a lot of attention here suddenly about all the listening they do. I think the way that I want to back into this story is by referring to Christina Borgeson's excellent book, Feet to the Fire, wherein she looked at uh, the ramp-up to the war in Iraq and the miserable mainstream media coverage of events leading up to it. One of the persons she interviewed for that book was James Bamford. Mr. Bamford first wrote about the NSA, I think about 15 years ago, with his epic book, The Puzzle Palace, which I think for the first time educated a lot of Americans and people around the world about what the NSA was up to. In case you're not aware of this fact, the NSA apparently has a budget as large or larger than that of the Central Intelligence Agency, although it's hard to know exactly since this, their funding goes in what's called the black budget, from which numbers cannot be extracted, unless you're in the know. But I'm especially sad to note we were on the trail of having James Bamford on this program a few years back, and uh, that fell by the wayside, but we're going to renew that effort. Anyway, let's start this discussion by excerpting from uh, Christina's interview with Mr. Bamford, she noted at one point that that you can kill the truth by doing, quote, official source journalism, unquote. Said Bamford, I know. Talking about the ramp up to the Iraq war, she said, Judy Miller did the reports and then she was on the shows as a talking head saying, yeah, they're definitely dangerous. We've got to be watchful because they may attack us at any time. Said Christina, I don't think you need to spend much time working as a reporter to understand that official sources are going to lie to you from time to time. And the more sensitive the story, the greater the likelihood that they will lie to you. It's almost a basic principle of journalism. Said Bamford, when I was starting out and nobody had ever heard of me, and I was writing The Puzzle Palace, a book about this big intelligence agency, the NSA, I was as low as you could get. I started out on my own with no background and no experience, and I really had to dig hard to get the sources. 
But when you get up to the network level as an investigative producer or whatever the equivalent is for newspapers, it's very easy to, to succumb to what I call silver platter journalism. They come to you all the time with a silver platter saying, here's a story. I'll give you the sources. These people will talk to you. It happens all the time. And I never went along with that when I was at ABC. But there were a lot of people who did. That's where the New York Times has gotten into the worst trouble twice. It's the only two times they've ever had to do a mea culpa. The first time was Wen Ho Lee, the government scientist at Los Alamos who was charged with spying for the Chinese. The right wing from Congress put together a silver platter package for a reporter from the New York Times. And it had this whistleblower and congressional staffers who were willing to talk about Wen Ho Lee being a metaphor for the administration selling out to China. And they were coming out with all this stuff, which turned out to be 90% nonsense. In the discussion, uh, James Bamford specifically cites the Knight Ritter newspaper uh, chain as doing a good job in covering what was really going on in the ramp up to war. To that, we would probably wish to add the good people at McClatchy, who also did not toe the line like many other organizations. All right, to quote from The Economist on this story, referring to the story about the leak that broke in The Guardian on June 9th, the magazine said the leaker revealed himself the next day, Edward Snowden, a 29-year-old who had worked as a security contractor at the NSA for the past four years, employed by several private contractors. In an interview with The Guardian from Hong Kong, where he'd holed up in hope of avoiding extradition to America, Mr. Snowden said the NSA had built the capacity to ingest massive quantities of information from people not suspected of crimes, saying, quote, I do not want to live in a world where everything I do and say is recorded. Snowden said he believed that the public, not spies and secret courts, ought to decide whether this is right. The magazine notes that since its creation in 1952, the NSA has been listening in on the world's communications, from drunk Soviet leaders to Osama bin Laden's satellite phone. Its thirst for information is well known. For decades, under a program called Echelon, it has operated listening stations around the world that intercept troves of phone and data traffic. Yet the latest disclosures suggest a scale of data collection bigger than many experts had expected. A former high-ranking American official with ties to intelligence says more programs skirting legality have still to be exposed. Mr. Stoden has handed over thousands of classified documents, according to Glenn Greenwald, the Guardian journalist who broke the story, so more disclosures are probably on the way. The piece goes on. The leaks have shaken the Obama administration and drew swift criticism in Congress. Two Democratic senators, Ron Wyden and Mark Udall, who have warned about state intrusion into privacy for years, demanded that the government should reveal more about its data gathering. Congressman Jim Sessenbrenner, a Republican and the author of the Patriot Act, the legal basis for the sweeping surveillance, called the activities an abuse of the law. Boy, that's, that's a sign the administration may be in some trouble here. But of course, the NSA outlives all administrations. It's part of the, of the permanent bureaucracy. Peace also notes that just three months ago, Congressman Wyden asked James Clapper, currently our Director of National Intelligence, and who was testifying under oath before the Senate, whether the NSA collected any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans. Mr. Clapper said it did not. Thanks to Mr. Snowden's leak, everyone now knows that it does. The magazine notes rather blandly at that point that as a candidate, Mr. Obama applauded the courage of whistleblowers and wrote into the White House on their disclosures. As president, he has prosecuted them far more vigorously than did his predecessors.
But uh, for me, the most curious aspect out of uh, this whole um, whole circus was was some comments made by Christopher Boyce about Edward Snowden and what's likely to happen to him. Christopher Boyce, you may recall, was the basis of the pretty good movie, uh, The Falcon and the Snowman. Of course, there were two books written, one with the same title and one a follow-up book about uh, the adventures and misadventures of uh, Christopher Boyce and his high school pal Dalton Lee, who decided to um, take the data that Boyce was seeing come before him in a top-secret facility for TRW, where he was examining CIA cables, and decide to take that information and sell it to the Soviet Union. It is a rather remarkable true-life spy tale, and I think the article by Peter Shadbold, writing for CNN, is worth quoting from. Sitting alone in a hotel room, unable to contact friends or family or even walk the teeming streets of Hong Kong without looking over his shoulder, there can be few who can claim to know the fear and isolation that NSA leaker Edward Snowden is living through. One man, however, is better qualified than most. Former spy, fugitive, and convicted traitor Christopher Boyce sold U.S. secrets to the former Soviet Union and dodged U.S. authorities for almost two years after his arrest in 1977 at the age of 22. Young, idealistic, and driven by a mixture of political conviction and outlaw excitement, Boyce eventually received a 40-year sentence for espionage in 1980. He escaped from the federal penitentiary in Lompoc, California, and while on the run, carried out a string of bank robberies in Idaho and Washington State, crimes for which he says he carries a greater weight of remorse than those for espionage. Released on parole in 2003 after serving 25 years, Boyce now lives on America's West Coast and is working on his memoirs. In it, he outlines how in 1974, a clean-cut college kid, the son of a respected FBI agent, lands a job at an aerospace and defense firm in Southern California, TRW, where he sees misrouted Central Intelligence Agency cables that allegedly discuss destabilizing the Australian government, which was then led by a center-left coalition of Gough Whitlam. Whitlam's government was famously and controversially deposed in 1975 in what some argue amounted to a constitutional coup d'etat. The then-Governor-General, the British Queen's representative in Australia, Sir John Kerr, who occupied a largely ceremonial office, invoked the rarely used Queen's Reserve powers to fire a democratically elected government to resolve a long-standing political deadlock. According to accounts by Boyce, the Governor-General was casually referred to in CIA circles as Armand Kerr. Only a few years earlier, Australia had been a key U.S. ally in the Vietnam War, and Whitlam's government had already raised ire in Washington by withdrawing Australian troops within hours of taking office in 1972. By 1975, the Whitlam government was asking uncomfortable questions about key U.S. military installations based in Australia, and Boyce claims that the CIA had the Whitlam government firmly in its sights. Appalled, that the U.S. Secret Services was used, would use their powers of surveillance and secret influence to depose the government of a U.S. ally, Boyce teamed up with childhood friend Andrew Dalton Lee and embarked on a journey that made them one of the Cold War's most infamous spy teams. Asked about Edward Snowden, Boyce said, I feel for the guy and what his life is going to become. I pity him. He's in for a world of hurt for the rest of his life. I feel sorry for him. He's going to go through life not being able to trust anybody. And I think that in the end, it'll end badly for him. 
One way or another, they'll get their hands on him. He's going to pay for it. He is doomed. Asked about a comparison to Snowden, Boyce said, the major difference between Snowden and myself is that I didn't come out publicly with my information. <laughs> no, he was selling it to the Soviets secretly. Also, my motives were different. I was sworn to revenge. It certainly was a far different time and place. Up to that point in my life, my view of the U.S. federal government was that it had only gotten worse. I grew up in a different time, watching the Kennedy assassination, watching the race riots on television, and watching the U.S. government slide into the Vietnam War, which was to me just about the most idiotic, stupid, evil exercise of power my country has ever pulled off. I went to work as a contractor for the NSA like Snowden, and what I discovered on the Twixies, telex messages that were sent back and forth, showed that we were undermining the government of Australia, an ally. I don't know if Snowden views the U.S. government in the same way that I did. Maybe he does. He's uncovering things and made things public that sound to me as if they're illegal. Things that show the NSA and the CIA are lying to Congress. Perhaps in a way, it is similar. But what Snowden has done is much different. My aim was to hurt the United States government. I suppose he's doing that too, but in a public way. Yet, he's not as underhanded about it as I was. He goes on a bit later. I don't know if he has an arrangement with the Chinese government. If he doesn't, I'd be worried that the Chinese may deport him to the U.S. to gain some concession. I'd be terrified of that. Who would trust the Chinese government? He is utterly vulnerable and knows that there are a lot of people who really want to hurt him now. If I were him, I would at this point probably be having second thoughts, asking myself, what did I do? What have I brought down upon my head? Did I really do this? The fact is, he can never come back home. In a video clip that accompanied uh, this piece on the web, uh, Boyce was seen talking about how it was going to go for Snowden, knowing that, um, yeah, they'll put him in prison. They'll put him probably in solitary confinement for mm, probably 10 years. And he'll probably hold up pretty well for about the first year. And then after that, he's going to wonder about what he has done to his life. All that said, people, we need whistleblowers out there. We need people that have the courage to come forward and do what they think is right, even if they know they're going to pay quite a large personal penalty for it. Even Boyce was speculating about uh, Edward Snowden, saying, well, yeah, I think he's trying to do what he thinks is right. There's probably some narcissism mixed up in this and some ego, which I think shows some insight in the part of someone who was in the in a similar space at one time, but that he seems pretty clear that it's, it's not just simply self-glorification going on here. We should note, too, that the NSA has come forward to deny Snowden's claims that they can tap into the phone or computer of any U.S. citizens. They're saying that legally obtained phone records have helped thwart dozens of terrorist events. Well, we hope so, but we do want to refer you, dear listener, to the Puzzle Palace. Um, James Bamford's book, which is, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't check the copyright on it, but it's, it's, it's getting long on the tooth at this point. But it told stories about what the NSA feels it's uh, obliged to do when listening into phone calls. And I can tell you this, if you're talking to anybody overseas, that according to Bamford, many years back, even at that time, the NSA had sophisticated transcribing ability to take the word said enter them into a computer database, and um, pluck out conversations that had things in them that seemed of interest. Now, whether this goes on domestically is somewhat more controversial, but I do have to confess, on many occasions while talking to friends, I have said things like, yes, 
We've got the plutonium. Now, if you can just come up with the triggers. Pause. And I hope you boys at the NSA are enjoying this. And I have to admit, this will probably seem a whole lot less funny if I'm in a jumpsuit in Guantanamo one day. But in the meantime, I think we'll just yuck it up. All right, we should bring this segment to a close. I do want to note in the same Bamford article, he was talking about what was going on back in uh, the neocon days, uh, lobbying very hard to get a war in Iraq even before 9-11, and noted that those spearheading the efforts wanted a, um, a three-pronged attack. They wanted to take out Iraq, then they wanted to take out Syria, then they wanted to take out Iran. I thought of that relative to the headlines from the B uh, last Tuesday. Obama, Putin, draw lines on Syria. Subheadline leaders express sharp differences on conflict in G8 summit talks. Yeah, because we are arming the rebels and the Russians are arming the government. I think it's fair to say both sides are probably making a lot of dough by shipping arms overseas. Oh, and I did hear Thomas Friedman on uh, Michael Krasny uh, on Wednesday, yesterday. I hope you, you checked that out. Friedman's a smart guy that wrote a really good book, From Beirut to Jerusalem, who was nailed by Norman Solomon, who called into the program to just say, Tom Friedman was cheerleading for the war in Iraq and chortling about it. To which Friedman then took issue with the use of the verb chortle. Talking about how he agonized over the decision to become a cheerleader for the Bush administration, saying nothing to do with WMDs. It was about bringing democracy to the Middle East. Friedman predicted that the Assad government would probably prevail and that the Israelis would probably be okay with that over some worse alternative. Given his track record for predictions of late, <laughs> we would say that uh, probably bodes well for the opposition. And man, we really do hope that uh, a more moderate stance by the, uh, the new people in Iran can really help the situation there because we do not want to have another war started in that part of the world. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We intend to lighten the mood considerably in our third segment, so stick around for that. <laughs> 